1: I mean, we're a court.
0: We really don't know about these things. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the internet. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast on the courts and the law and the Supreme Court. I am Dahlia Lithwick. I cover those things for Slate. And this week, the High Court decided to take the internet out for a spin, and the court came back. confused. Regulating free speech on the internet turns out to be kind of hard, especially for a court that hasn't really thought very much about this issue um, ever. So joining us today to talk about some cases that could literally strip internet publishing right down to the studs is the wonderful Professor Danielle Citron, who is going to help us and the justices, I hope, know what we don't know when it comes to, oh, little things like content moderation and search algorithms and theories of causation. Happily, Professor Citron has been thinking about these issues for a really long time. Later on in the show, Slate Plus members are going to get to hear Mark Joseph Stern as he pops in to discuss some of the first decisions of the term, which came down this past week, as well as the fate of President Joe Biden's $400 billion student debt relief program, which will be heard by the court next week. That conversation with Mark can only be accessed by Slate Plus members, so if you'd like to join us and have access to bonus segments from lots of your very favorite Slate shows like Slow Burn and Political Gabfest, completely ad-free episodes of all Slate's shows, and if never ever hitting a paywall for any of Slate's articles sounds kind of good to you, well, go to slate.com slash amicusplus to sign up. That's slate.com slash amicus plus. And thank you, really thank you, for supporting the work we do here on the show. But first, the internet. Not really a thing that could be fixed over a few hours in February of 2023, but props to the justices who were willing to give it a try. In a pair of cases this past week that ranged over many, many hours on two separate argument days, the consensus now seems to be that these issues are far too complicated, the consequences too vast, for the Supreme Court to just step in and take a big swing at regulating all internet speech. In the first argument, Tuesday, the justices heard for nearly three hours from the family of an American student killed in a 2015 ISIS attack in Paris. The family argued that Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, that's the federal law that protects websites' right to moderate their platforms as they see fit, The argument was that needed to be narrowed by the court. At the heart of that case is this question of whether tech companies could or should be held liable for harmful content posted on their platforms by their users. The next day, on Wednesday, the court heard a companion case to that one about whether Twitter should be held responsible for an Istanbul terror attack This would sidestep the Section 230 question by parsing a different federal law that allows some lawsuits for, quote, knowingly providing substantial assistance to terrorists. That argument also kind of felt like a seemingly all or nothing mess. We want to be really clear that internet violence and the incitement of violence is a serious problem. The question is whether the court could resolve it in a few hours this week. Joining us to discuss both cases is Danielle Citron. She is the Jefferson Scholars Foundation Shank Distinguished Professor in Law and Cadell and Chapman Professor of Law at UVA, where she writes and teaches about privacy, free expression, and civil rights. Her scholarship and advocacy have been recognized nationally and internationally. In 2019, Citron was named a MacArthur Fellow based on her work on cyberstalking and intimate privacy, and her brand new book, The Fight for Privacy: Protecting Dignity, Identity, and Love in the Digital Age, was published by WW w. Norton and Penguin Vintage UK in October of 2022. And it was named one of Amazon's top 100 books of 2022. Danielle, congratulations on the book. It is so thrilling to have you back on Amicus. Welcome back to the show.
2: I love being back and love talking with you. (laughs) Nothing would keep me from you. Um, Well,
0: uh, I want to, we're just going to have to do a whole um, book show in the summer because what you're doing is really cutting edge. And I think one of the themes of this show is that kind of, content moderation on the internet feels like it's the last war and i want to sort of end there that it feels like we're fighting a fight that is almost obsolete as we talk about it but i do want to start if you would cuz everybody talks about section 230 and nobody quite knows what it does and so this case has been you know what it does um section 230 this is a juggernaut it's been a long time coming here at the supreme court it's described as, quote, the 26 words that created the internet. Can you just walk us through, please, as though we're seven, what Section 230 was designed to do, why it became the bête noire of particularly conservatives, but across the spectrum, what the purpose was, because I think that now we talk about it as though it was just designed to immunize internet companies from everything. And that's not right.
2: Yes, no. And what's, um, so thank you so much for inviting me to talk about that history and the specific provisions and how they work together, because you're right. So often we just gloss over the thing. It's like magic, fairy dust, First Amendment, free speech. And that's in, in many respects a misunderstanding of the project, of the provisions and how they work together and um, the original purpose and history. So, you know, Section 230 is part of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. And it was truly, shockingly, an anti-porn statute, you know, like criminalizing the knowing facilitation of pornography. And one would think, how do you have an internet without porn? But Congress in 1996, maybe we could have one. And the Supreme Court sort of knew better and struck all of the statute down except for Section 230. Now, Section 230, the title of Section 230 is Protecting Good Samaritan Blocking and Filtering of Offensive Content. Okay, so you might think, huh, Congress is talking about principally how to incentivize protecting the private filtering and blocking of offensive content. That's the title. And there are a number of provisions that work together. There's a purposes and a findings part of the statute. But where we're going to focus our energy and where, you know, we ought to, are Two provisions of Section 230C. Sorry to get really in the weeds, but it's, I think, really important to talk about not only the titles, but the language and like what Representatives Cox and Wyden were trying to do and what they were responding to. So, Section 230C says, again, protection for private filtering and blocking of offensive speech. And Section 230C1 is called treatment of a publisher or speaker. And I'm going to like loosely explain the two parts and then what they're trying to do. Okay, so C1 says treatment of publisher or speaker. And it says no user or provider, I'm doing this by heart, but I've said it so many times, I, I think we can trust me. So no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher or speaker of information provided by another information content provider. So that's C1. C2, its title is civil liability, and it says no user, and this is the only time we talk about immunity, but it says no user or provider of an interactive computer service shall be held liable for voluntarily and in good faith, and I'm riffing here, but filtering or blocking of objectionable Content. They gave a couple examples like harassment and stalking and, you know, lewd, offensive, obscene speech. But basically, that's the idea. And so these work together. They write C1 and C2 together. And the idea is to provide incentives for companies, the early Internet service providers and their users, to moderate content and to act as the Good Samaritans, blocking and filtering offensive content. Because Cox and Wyden knew that there's no chance federal agencies could deal with all this by themselves. The internet was like a kind of glimmer in their eyes. We had the early bulletin boards. We had access to the internet truly only through these like walled gardens, like AOL, Prodigy, the very early ISPs. And they wrote these two provisions in response to a New York State trial court opinion, Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy, which by the way, fascinatingly is a defamation lawsuit brought by the fraudster of the time, the Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort. But long, long story short is he brings, so Jordan Belfort runs a boiler shop. He's later convicted of fraud and goes to jail and then becomes this like evangelist for don't do crimes. <laughs> but His firm sues Prodigy because on one of their bulletin boards called Money Talks, somebody posted basically accusing them of fraud, which was true. But like any good fraudster, what do they do if this feels so Trumpian, right? They say, hey, defamation, you're defaming me. But the New York trial court looks at Prodigy and its business practices and says, hey, Prodigy, you were trying to moderate and filter basically dirty words, so profanity. You were using filtering software. And you were moderating, so you were removing content that you a you were filtering, but you were also detecting profanity and other prohibited objectionable content, and you were taking it down. And so what the New York trial court found is because Prodigy was trying to moderate content, that that increased their liability, that they then became the publisher, strictly liable publisher of any content, any defamation, because it's a defamation lawsuit, that they failed to remove. So trying to clean up the internet then received a penalty. And Cox and Wyden were horrified. Apparently, Chris Cox was like an early user of both Prodigy and CompuServe. He like apparently was a big fan of the early bulletin boards. And Rod and Wyden, then a, a fellow House member, also was really interested in ensuring that the internet would become something like they wanted to see what it would become they wanted the flowers to bloom and they also wanted to make sure that companies engaged in content moderation they didn't want them to be disincentivized they didn't want them to fear that if they engaged in content moderation they'd be punished for it right it would increase their liability okay so c1 and this is conversation on the floor it's in committee reports You dive in like I did. You like get to know, start writing about this stuff in 2008. (laughs) You read all the committee reports. You read the House debates. And it's clear both Cox's comments and then Representative Goodlatte say that we write Section 230C1 as a direct response and to repudiate Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy. So the idea of we're not going to treat you as a publisher or speaker, what that means is that we're not going to treat you as a publisher or speaker for someone else's information in the project of trying to block, remember the title, block or filter offensive content. So that's C1, right? So it's a direct repudiation or congressional overruling of Stratton C2 is the only provision that says anything at all about an immunity. It's called civil liability, right? Is the title of C2. And that provision talks about if you block and filter, you do it voluntarily and you do it in good faith, then you're specifically immune from civil liability. Okay. So you got to look at the two provisions together, that what they were trying to do, Cox and Wyden, was to provide incentives or to remove, they say in the front of the findings and purposes, remove the disincentives from using any technologies that would block and filter objectionable and offensive content. And they made these two moves. One, we're going to overrule Stratton Oakmont. And the second was to ensure an immunity from civil liability for doing that kind of blocking and filtering in good faith. So you might say, huh, okay, that's a narrow project. It's an important project. It's one where they're trying to incentivize content moderation right? They wanted companies to engage in that. And the purposes part of the statute, that's 230B, it's actually there are five purposes. One says has to do with free speech and encouraging the true diversity of political viewpoints online. But another equally as important purpose is to remove disincentives from blocking and filtering objectionable content. And the third, and this is kind of the heart of my work, says it wants to ensure that we enforce all laws against cyber stalking, cyber harassment, and other forms of online abuse. So that's a multi-layered purpose, right? That's not just, okay, ready? Free speech, free speech, free speech, sorry. <laughs> that's just the, all the oxygen in the room is not about free speech. Okay, so that's, that's where we are in 1996.
0: We are going to take a short break.
1: First-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: We are back with Professor Danielle Citron of the University of Virginia. And then in 1997, you get a case that sets the lower
2: courts down this path of kind of delinking C1 and C2, right? One of the very first imp- opinions and an important decision, Zoran versus AOL, is the Fourth Circuit. um Judge Wilkinson writes, the Fourth Circuit finds that the decision that defamation not only applies, we're going to treat as a publisher or speaker and find a moon from responsibility, cites that, you know, any interactive computer service, even if they know about defamation and don't take it down. So we're going to consider distributor liability as part of publisher liability. And this is all still defamation. I'm still like, okay. (laughs) But the big error I think in Saran that the court makes is to say the only purpose of section 230 is to enable free speech. And that's just wrong. You know, What's that line about from Scalia's matter of interpretation where he says, like, you look out into a field and you you see a lot of poppies and you pick only the ones you like, you know, like the red ones or not the blue ones, like you only pick your friends. That's just not true, right? And what happens is the lower court, so the Supreme Court, as you noted so well, has never dealt with a 230 problem before, has consistently refused requests and invitations to hear cases to grant cert. And we've written in CCRI amicus briefs to urge them to take on cases. They've never before this one. So it's been 25 plus years. And the lower courts have made a hash of it. The lower courts have only understood, they viewed section 230C1 as the only relevant provision. They fail to see the two pieces together. And the project is one of incentivizing content moderation. And instead of viewing C1 as related really only to leaving up content, that's where they should keep it, right? That is the idea was if you fail to remove or you leave up content that's posted by somebody else, then you shouldn't be held responsible for that. Especially if you're trying, you can add the gloss. I think it's really important because that's the title. But if you're trying to be a good Samaritan and instead it's anything that's posted online, That constitutes ones and zeros is conceivably speech then that deserves an immunity and that includes and this will take us to the case before us now which is where you have youtube not just leaving up not just failing to remove isis videos because if that's what this case was about i would say what a loser why did you bother that is clearly covered by section 230 c1 Exactly what Cox and White had wanted, even outside the defamation context, right? If if it was just about failing to remove and leaving up information provided by someone else, I wouldn't be losing my marbles. But instead, the fury of liability in this case is about what YouTube did, that its algorithms, which its designs, you know, they're not, there's some nonsense in the questions, that algorithms are neutral. And I don't know what drugs these folks are taking, but they know nothing about the design of algorithms, which is they're engineers. They're really high paid. There ain't nothing neutral about what they're doing. These folks are designing, algorithms are a set of instructions. They may be very highfalutin. They may be machine learning algorithms and deep learning neural networks, but these engineers build them and what these algorithms are doing because the, the model of youtube's business is online behavioral advertising is these algorithms are mining our data that they collect massive reservoirs of our data that they collect not only based on what we're doing on youtube they're buying it from data brokers it's a very expensive proposition right so they have massive reservoirs of our personal data they are they're refining these engineers work really hard round the clock Right. They're building algorithms that are super intelligent that tell them what videos we are most likely given our profiles, given our clicking, given our liking, given our personal data that we're most likely to click on because then they'll earn advertising fees from that. And so this case is about the theory of liability uh, um, that the petitioners and the plaintiffs allege is that your algorithms, YouTube, your systems of massing amassing personal data are making recommendations, and it's your your efforts to make recommendations that's at the heart of the lawsuit. It's not about the failure to remove or keeping up and leaving up ISIS videos, no matter what these videos say it's about your recommendations based on your algorithmically fine-tuned, sophisticated, fancy, very expensive algorithms, and mining of personal data. And so the court, I mean, Justice Jackson is on it.
0: Hold on. Give me one second. <laughs> Give me one second right. to reflect okay. back
2: two things that you just said. Okay. So sorry.
0: Never apologize for being the smart person, my sister. That's why you're here. But I want to reflect back two things and tell me if I'm right, because I think you've said two important things. One, is that the reason we've all been screaming about Section 230 for a very, very long time is because it is... A statute that's wrapped in a lot of political noise and that we've been screaming about the political noise, which is, as you say, free speech, free speech, free speech, without understanding that this is a complicated push-me-pull-you statute that is incentivizing moderation and incentivizing what you're calling good Samaritan efforts to regulate and in so doing immunizing certain kinds of civil liability. That's the first thing you're saying. And so when we hear, right, from Ted Cruz like why is Alex Jones uh punished but not, you know, liberals? That's that's a political conversation about free speech that does not map onto the statute. That's the first thing you just said, right?
2: Totally. Like C2 wants them to do this. Like Ted Cruz is what he's saying is let's get rid of 230 period. C2, which is not an issue in this case. But the whole point of the statute is to encourage blocking and filtering objectionable in the eyes of the interactive service or the user. Okay, good. Right? That's totally a political move. It's not a statutory interpretation. <laughs> right. And,
0: and 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 what you're saying, and this is so important, Danielle, is that the court kind of took a political case. Like they took a case that they've been asked to take uh, and that there was great urgency. And I know Justice Thomas like really was chomping at the bit to decide this is a political case. Yeah. But it's really a tough, you know, as you say, you know, intent and purpose and legislative language case to map on to that political story. The second thing you just said is really important. And I want to just say it again for listeners, which is, it's clear that the plaintiffs and Gonzalez couldn't have sued Google just for hosting the videos, right? That that's 230 is that's a slam dunk. So the claim here is that YouTube's algorithm that was pushing out this violent, uh, radicalizing material is the problem, right? That's what we're actually talking about in this case. And so everything everybody thought that was happening in the court is in fact not what's at issue. Right. Those are the two things you just said to me? Yes. Okay. Now let's do Justice Jackson. Go.
2: So in all the questioning, there's so much misdirection happening. There's the line of questions about, I think it's Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, These algorithms are neutral, which is A, untrue as a matter of technical fact, and B, have nothing to do with the question. (laughs) Like, There's nothing in Section 230 that would even ever suggest neutrality. In fact, it's an anti-neutrality statute. It says like, hey, your job here is to moderate, and we're going to give you incentives to moderate. Okay, that's first. There's another set of misdirection, which is like, she, I think Kavanaugh says this, isn't this a problem that's going to wreck the economy? Again, he's like engaging in politics. Okay. That's not the issue here. I thought you were a judge. You're going to read the briefs. <laughs> you know, I thought these justices were going to be well prepped by their clerks and ask searing questions about the legislative history and the actual words and how these provisions fit together. And then also there's Justice Kagan, who's like, we can't figure out the internet. We're just nine people who don't understand anything, which is just simply not true, right? They've issued lots of opinions about complicated network technologies in the Fourth Amendment context. It's not like they can't figure out network technologies. They would get it when they're interested. The only justice who's on it is Justice Jackson. I was swooning. <laughs> you know, like, truly, she has read the briefs. She has read the legislative history. She has read the literature and the scholarship. I was like, oh my goodness, yes. (laughs) So she truly digs in to the statutory words. She digs into exactly what C1 and C2 say and how they work together. She digs into the title. She knows the history that Cox and Wyden write Section 230 in response to Stratton Oakmont Versus Prodigy. She knows precisely what Prodigy the finding was and what Cox and Wyden were responding to. She echoes explicitly the multifaceted purposes that Congress lays out in 230B. She lays them out. She gets it. You know, it's not that it's palatable to some. The po- folks who view this as a political problem are not going to like the fact that in 1996, Congress didn't imagine a world in which ISPs would be using algorithms and mining data as a business model, that they would be pressing content for their own purposes, that their business would be putting before us so that we like clicked and shared on their ads content. They were imagining the early bulletin boards where people put up content. You know, Money Talks was a bulletin board. There were alt sex was a bulletin board. I mean, there were countless bulletin boards that these ISPs created. And what people posted, Cox and Widen didn't want them to bear responsibility for everything that was posted, be strictly liable for that content if it was defamation, because they wanted them to try to moderate and engage in those kinds of filtering efforts. But what we have today is a different internet. I literally laughed out loud when Kavanaugh's like, golly, sounds so Mort Horowitz. Like, what would happen to these companies if they had to bear a liability? And the answer is, these are the five biggest, fanciest, billions of dollars, market cap dominant players. I'm not gonna cry a river here, but they would operate as do their offline counterparts, and have to bear responsibility. And only in the case, if they recommended, I mean, if, if this theory worked out for the plaintiff, and we don't know, but they would bear responsibility for their own actions. We would enter a world in which network tools that these tools and services that engage in exploitation of our data, they'd have to be responsible for some of what they did. They would not be responsible for actually for over-filtering, C2 stands, right? We're not going to lose our marbles here, but it would be a proper interpretation of C1. Finally, right? We wouldn't be in this land of over-interpreting C1, right? But the justices seem to think they're out of their skis here, that they can't interpret this statute. But you know what Justice Jackson showed us? She's brilliant. They can interpret the statute. And if Congress wants to, revise the playing field and keeping on this super, you know, it's almost like a super immunity that we have here. It's a uh, an unqualified immunity, so to speak. it's like an absolute super immunity that anything happens on the internet they're immune from and that shouldn't be the case. That wasn't the point of C1. And so I hope they listen to Justice Jackson and heed her lessons because she read the briefs. she understands the stakes. She understands the theory of liability the plaintiffs are pushing. It's not about treating YouTube as a publisher speaker for leaving up, failing to remove ISIS videos. The theory of liability isn't about the ISIS videos and not taking them down. The theory of liability is the business model of YouTube, of using an algorithm to recommend using our data in a very sophisticated way to press content.
0: Okay, so I was going to waste your time evidently and our listeners by playing both that Kavanaugh quote and uh, the Kagan quote that I think you pretty persuasively demonstrated just now are a little bit orthogonal to what we really want to do here, which is for you to explain to us if the court were taking it seriously in the fashion that Justice Jackson did take it seriously, and they wanted to do a thing that is not too big to fail, right? Like, oh, there's too too much money. We can't do anything. That there is a fix here that the court could pick a way through. Can you write that opinion for me?
2: I could, easily. I feel like I've written it on a series of law review articles, you know, (laughs) where I explain that the overbroad interpretation of the statute has led us to a land that misunderstands Section 230C1 and 2 and how they operate together. And, you know, we have instructions, a blueprint from Cox and Wyden. We can go back to the origins. We can go to the language. So the decision would read, and I'm imagining this is what Justice Jackson would write, is that YouTube, Section 230 does not immunize YouTube from liability, civil liability here, because C1 is inapplicable. Here, what's at issue is YouTube's own conduct, their algorithmic recommendation system that they built and make tons of money from, that they use our data and recommend things. This lawsuit isn't about treating YouTube as a publisher or a speaker for information that they failed to remove or left up. We out, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's a hard problem, of course, because there are all these downstream consequences, which is the policy question next is, but Danielle, isn't that, you know, justice Jackson or, you know, justice, like You have to wrestle with the fact that so much of tools and services that we use online are using all types of tools that mine our data to make recommendations? And will that open these companies up to liability? And the answer is it might. They'd need genuine theories of liability, right? And those genuine theories of liability, you know, would have to get past themselves 12 motions to dismiss on on the grounds of legal cognizability, even after we deal with the question of immunity. So there's no blanket immunity, But then, of course, you got to have some theory of relief that works. So, I guess my policy response, and this is not a legal, analytical, statutory interpretation response, but my policy response to the concern that we are going to have liability that follows, like any other industry, where you have to face liability for your business model. That my response is, well, let's see what happens. And if Congress wants to step in and provide a section 230 2.0 where they explicitly draft a law that says this is a super immunity this is anything that happens at the content layer whether it's recommendations if they want to write that statute do it friends but that's not the statute that was written in 1996 and that has been interpreted in an aggressively overbroad way i thought the court was nine justices that are really super smart and they go and they figure out when the lower courts are doing a terrible hash of things, that they fix matters. I mean, that was my understanding always. I, I have an avid listener to you, Dahlia. I I know what they're supposed to be doing. I also know what they haven't been doing, but I also know what their purpose is, these nine brilliant people in black robes. And they can they can do it.
0: So just to be perfectly clear, you're saying, look, the problem is that YouTube is mining our data, pushing out crazy crap. You know, there's a version of the algorithm theory that is right here. It was not pursued correctly. You're also saying there is super immunity, but it's not going to get resolved uh, by making YouTube. In other words, there's some merit to the claim here. It's not argued correctly and it's not understood correctly by the court, but that there is a pathway to fixing this here. And I think you're ultimately saying, by the way, the court can't fix it. The court can get out of the way and let Congress fix it and not make it worse. That's what you're saying.
2: Yes. Yes. Like my my version of the world is I didn't want the court really to take this case. Dr. Marianne Franks and I, I'm the vice president of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, and and Dr. Franks is our president. And we wrote an amicus in which we offered what we understand is really the true principal purpose of 230, its early understandings. You know, we sort of walked through the prodigy versus, you know, Stratton Oakmont. And the court could get it right and be still unsatisfied. And in my scholarship, I have offered reforms for Section 230, That would be narrow reforms that get at the bad Samaritans that focus on the kinds of costs that the current interpretation of Section 230 has left on the table to be borne by victims. They're strictly liable for all the harm, intimate privacy violations, and cyber-stalking. So I'm talking to Congress. (laughs) I think that's the right spot for all of this. But if Justice Jackson, I think, rightfully wants to reset the lower court's hash, they've made a mess of Section 230, they have applied it even though the theory of liability has been about what companies have done themselves. The design of their sites, I'm thinking of Carrie Goldberg's case against Grindr, where the theory of liability is products liability. Hey, Grindr, it's how you built this site that is the wrong. And courts have dismissed those claims. You know, I'd love it if the courts also got it right, you know, that they didn't just look at 230 as a free pass. And if they could interpret it in a correct way, but, you know, the political questions are going to remain. And so if we're unsatisfied, okay, Congress, I got some solutions for you. I've drafted a statute for you in my, you know, in my scholarship, and I've been working with some of those folks on the Hill. Um, So it's not like we can't do it. It's just two different projects.
0: And and certainly whatever the project was that happened on Tuesday has nothing to do with the project you and uh, Dr. Franks are
2: talking about. Right. What we tried to do in our amicus brief, Dr. Franks and I, was to basically we spoke to Justice Jackson and I think she heard us. Right. That we 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 want to level set and get back to the proper understanding of section 230 and kind of more us in the legislative history, more us in Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy. Let's look at the language, right? Let's not get kind of confused by some definition section that Gorsuch unmoored from the statute itself. And he's a textualist, but he forgot about text, to be honest. Right. But Justice Jackson was on it. She got it. But I don't know if the rest do. Time now for a break. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: And let's return to my conversation with Danielle Citron, who's giving us a crash course in Section 230 and all the ways the justices just whiffed it this past week. Can I ask you just briefly, I know you didn't tweet storm Wednesday's argument in the Twitter companion case, and it somewhat avoids the pitfalls of Section 230, but got mired in sort of the same thicket of causation and foreseeability under a different statute that was the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. Um, At Tuesday's argument, it sounded like Justice Amy Coney Barrett was suggesting that if they resolve this in the Twitter case, they could resolve both at once and the court wouldn't have to think about 230. Is that a way, I'm trying to think of a way out. In other words, as you said, the court way ahead of itself, you know, over its skis. There's no way to do this small. Is that the way out if the court wants to do it?
2: It seems to be. That is, if they decide that they're going to tackle the question that there's no aiding and it couldn't conceivably be under this amended, you know, part of the statute for ATA, that if they find there's no, you know, cognizability under aiding and abetting liability, yeah, then that seems like that they could decide that, right? And that would be a way out of what do they say? That's the 230 escape hatch. Like they can decide it on the JOSTA, um Anti-Terrorism Act amendment and then just say, okay, there's no aiding and abetting. And therefore we just, we don't have to deal with any of this immunity question.
0: So Danielle, we started with me saying to you that I, I just, I don't mean to be grumpy about this. But sometimes I think like when the justices can't figure out like how their garage door opener works, like they're always fighting the last war. And this isn't like ageism. It's even the younger justices, right? Are, yes. this is, technology is changing so fast that there's a weird, yeah. weird way in which we are now fighting about content moderation on YouTube and like ChatGPT is gonna like break the world, right? And so I guess I just wanna say, yeah, you are, I just told you to write this opinion as though you're Justice Jackson. Now I want you to tell me, are we just always gonna be belated in a way that we are approaching, by the time this stuff gets to the court or goes back to Congress? technology has changed so, so dramatically that that which was existential three years ago is just like a fond memory. We're like regulating dinosaur content moderation. It's just, this is the nature of the beast now.
2: So I'm going to disagree a little bit, because I think if we get our values right, that if we can figure out what really matters to us, then we can tackle technologies that come our way. So long as we either write our statutes in it in a way that's sophisticated enough and careful enough that we're not going to be outpaced by the technology. And you're absolutely right that technology changes so fast. But if we can map out the values that matter to us. So that's my, you know, our work on intimate privacy is sort of mapping out the things that matter that if we do that, if we care, if we figure out what we care about. And the values that we want to protect, that we think the values that are a precondition to human flourishing, gosh, then we can do it. I mean, we, we shouldn't throw up our hands and say, we can't figure this thing out. It doesn't mean it's easy. So uh, working with lawmakers on the state and federal level, I can tell you, it's never easy. But we see judges do a a good job. You know, once we were told at the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative that you couldn't draft a statute to criminalize non-consensual intimate imagery because it would never pass through the crucible of strict scrutiny. And we have in five cases and come out the other side with statutes that are totally consonant with the First Amendment, that we can do that if you do it with enough care. So we can protect intimate privacy, we can protect free expression, we've got to figure out the values that we think are most in jeopardy, and we've got to act carefully. We can do it. I'm not deterred, so to speak, but we also got to read the briefs. We got to read the history, you know, like the court can't just show up to the club unprepared. And that struck me, the most disappointing part of the argument was that the only person prepared... Brilliant as ever was Justice Jackson. Everyone else whiffed it. They literally were the frat boys with hold my beer. They're like, we can't figure this out. Like, what are you talking about? Somebody whispered them in an ear at the at the party the night before neutrality. It's too hard. Wrong institution
0: compared to a bookstore. Compared to a bookstore. Yeah, yeah,
2: totally. Like they had their little set thing. Somebody wrote them a cheat sheet, but they didn't do their homework except for Justice Jackson. So that upsets me. I'm like, I've been studying so hard. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> so Danielle, at the risk of of, of asking you to like,
0: uh, explain all of your career standing on one foot, I do think maybe you could play us out with a list of those values that you want us to center because I think, you know, we've talked about uh, revenge porn and, and violence. And I, I think that maybe it would be useful going forward and thinking about, if you and I can agree that the court is not going to radically rewrite Section 230, and that they probably want this case to go away. (laughs) But if we can agree that this was not the day to do what the court played at doing this week, what are the values we should be centering as we think about chat GPT and AI and all the ways in which technology is changing
2: at lightning speeds? Yeah. I mean, these technologies, these tools and services are indispensable to our lives. So we all should have a meaningful chance to use them. And at the same time, so use them for free expression and sexual expression, all the ways that we want to make the most of our lives and work and, you know, fall in love, meet people, network, you know, create opportunities for democratic engagement. We want to do all those things. And at the same time, those tools can be weaponized against us. All the while that we are doing things that are really important to our our careers and our ability to engage with other people and to love those tools are engaging in persistent continuous indiscriminate surveillance of our intimate lives and in doing that, you know, all the otherwise, we use these tools, we're not thinking that when we use our Amazon Echo, that it's recording and storing in the cloud, and then potentially leaking our private conversations in our kitchens. And we're not thinking as we use our period tracking apps and our dating apps, uh, we're searching adult videos on Pornhub, we are using our search engine, right, which is it's the key to our soul, you know, what we're searching and what we're thinking and what we're browsing. We're not thinking that all of that information is being used, shared, stored, sold, and exploited against us in ways that have implications for our life insurance premiums, the jobs that we do or don't get. And so the values that I want us to center and think about is we're using these all these platforms in ways that are so pro-social. And at the same time, We are the object, we're being turned into objects and manipulated and exploited. And I want us to think about how important the privacy around our intimate life is, right, around our bodies, our health, our sexual orientation, our sexual activities, our close relationships, that the privacy that we afford, that we want, that we expect, that we deserve, right, as we use these tools and services in the bedroom, I'm seeing my phone, it goes everywhere I go. That preserving the privacy, protecting the privacy around the data around our intimate life is so important for us to be able to figure out who we are and develop our identities. It's so important for us to enjoy self esteem and social esteem. So, when a content platform encourages people to post non consensual intimate imagery, right, the cost is that to so many people, more often women and sexual and gender minorities and racial minorities, the cost is that you're just a fragment. So when people see those images, you become just a body part, right? You're not you're not subject, you're object, right? You lose your social esteem. And if we didn't have intimate privacy, like if we use these tools, so Dahlia, yeah, I'm going to call you on the phone and we're going to use these tools and services to get to know each other and to form friendships, right, and, and fall in love. Like if we don't have that privacy, we can't form thick relationships. We need intimate privacy to be reciprocally vulnerable and to trust each other. And Charles Fried, I I, I always quote him because it's the greatest quote in the world from 1970, his book Anatomy of Values, where he said, "Privacy is the oxygen for love." And it is, and that's on the line. You know, you asked me, like, what are the values? What's on the line when we use these network tools and services, just to go back to our YouTube, right? What's on the line is our capacity for love, our capacity to communicate with privacy so we trust each other, right? What's on the line is our ability to get jobs and keep jobs, our ability to figure out who we are and express ourselves in ways that feel safe. Because privacy isn't a me, it's we, it's us. And so if we have in view, as we think through, even legislatively, or even the, the common law courts, policymakers, as we think through what matters, the stakes are, when we're talking about online life and all these tools, the stakes are intimate privacy. It is our civil rights and our liberties. And we often forget that when a site amplifies, recommends... Makes money off of, uses our data to recommend non consensual intimate imagery. The cost is to the sexual expression and expression of, of the privacy victims because they're leaving online life. They're shutting down their LinkedIn. They are not using YouTube. They are literally completely removing themselves from any online engagement and offline engagement. Their friends don't talk to them. You're vanquishing the speech opportunities for victims. And so we've got to have all of those values. In mind, you know, as we think about all the kinds of policies, you know, content moderation is a beautiful thing. I have to say, having worked with companies for 12 years or more, 15, we have seen industry self regulate in ways that 230 was meant to do. That we see companies responding to non consensual intimate imagery. I wish we could touch those 9,500 sites that their raison d'etre is intimate image abuse, right? I can't, <laughs> but companies are engaging in that project of content moderation in ways that protect victims so they can express themselves. And so I guess I want those values on the table. And that's the kind of thing, those, are the kinds of conversations that I've been having with lawmakers, with judges, with companies, you know, with all of us so that we have them in view as we make these decisions.
0: Danielle, sometimes I think of you as the world's biggest brain in a vat, and I forget a little bit until I hear you say things like what you just said, that you're also like the world's biggest heart in a vat. And it's just such a treat uh, to have you unpack this on the show for us today. These cases are both so important, but I think as you are urging, so important to get right Danielle Citron is the Jefferson Scholars Foundation Schenck Distinguished Professor in Law and Cadell and Chapman Professor of Law at UVA. She writes and teaches about privacy, free expression, and civil rights. Her scholarship and advocacy are so important. She was named a MacArthur Fellow based on her work on cyberstalking and intimate privacy in 2019. And her brand new book, The Fight for Privacy, Protecting Dignity, Identity, and Love in the Digital Age, was published this past October, and it is absolutely. Absolutely. If anything, uh, Danielle said resonated with you all today. Please, please buy it and read it because I think this is cutting edge work. Danielle, I cannot thank you enough for helping us unpack what felt really hyper-technical and abstract because it was hyper-technical and abstract, but also wrong. So thank you so much for helping us pick through it today.
2: And, and thank you. So Dahlia, you are also my heart and my brain. And so I <laughs> read and listen to you. I have Lady Justice in both audio. I'm 98% through the audio, but I had already read the book. So you inspire me so much. It's so meaningful for me to be on Amicus and to read you and to hear you all the time as I take walks. So thank you.
0: And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can always keep in touch at slate.com, Or you can find us at facebook.com slash podcast. We always love your letters. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of podcasts at Slate. And Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. And we'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. And until then, take good care.